they're full of guns is what's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> You know what I mean? So so I can people see how that kill people mountains kill people. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Reason Together, the podcast for Christians who think about stuff. My name's Thomas, here as always with my good friend Daniel. Yes. Yep, yep. And uh it seems like it's been quite a while uh, for me anyway. <laughs> uh, it does. Yeah, we've been pr- pretty busy, uh, as is that's the summers typically are. And I want to take a moment at the beginning of this podcast and uh, and do something we don't typically do, but just uh, to uh, to recognize uh, the life of one of our uh, elite patrons who just was recently uh, tragically passed away in an accident on vacation. And uh, Matt Burns was an elite patron and a personal good friend of mine. Uh, yes. And uh, and the uh, we just ask that you would pray for the family during this time, uh, as as we grieve and we ache deeply uh, at his at his loss. He was a uh, a person, as we say, was kind of as big as life and uh, uh, very involved and uh, and loved people and a lot mm-hmm. a lot good to say uh, about Brother Matt. And he will be sorely missed and just wanted to acknowledge him uh, at the beginning of this episode. Agreed. He will be missed. God is good. As we continue, I do want to say thank you. Uh, we just prayed before our episode began and uh, and thank the Lord for our uh, patrons, especially our elite patrons, all of you who uh, invest monetarily, that you uh, you put skin in the game to, uh, to uh, support what we're doing here. Really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Uh, for your support and uh, looking forward to <clears throat> to continuing what we're doing and uh, and so we've got a list of uh, of questions here today mm-hmm. and a bit of it yep. is feedback and we're we're getting increasing feedback and that's a good thing don't yes. you think Tom? I I do uh, um, on that note of new uh, or of patrons we do have a new patron yes. here uh, who has stepped in to the elite level here and that's uh, Tucker. Welcome um, aboard, Tucker. Yes, yes, I know Tucker. Um, appreciate that, Tucker. Thank you for jumping on board. Um, we're grateful to all of our patrons. Um, anyway, uh, let's let's figure out where we need to begin here. Okay, um, you uh, you have some things on here that you you've marked. Don't peek. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, which I should know that automatically that becomes the first thing discussed. Um, well, because I'm very impatient by nature. <laughs> uh, uh, do you want to start with that one? Yeah, it's funny. Or do we want to do some feedback? Trying, let me let me find out uh, which one. Oh, oh, this one. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just something. Uh, it just yeah. It's not like a substantive matter to discuss. But I was thinking the other day. Uh, a long time ago, we had talked about um, thought, we called it thought terminating cliches, right? You get into a conversation oh, yes. and somebody makes this comment that just kind of goes, okay, well, where do you go from there? You know, it's just sort of is done. Well, this is similar uh, and, it, and it's a cliche that I thought of recently that I've probably, I've used it, other people use it and I, and I get what they mean, but I, as I thought about it, I thought, that is really like a mindless cliche. Like, what is it even, you know, it means almost nothing, but have you ever heard anybody say, well, if it's not one thing, it's the next. 
Hmm. Have you heard that? I have I have heard this, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. The context I usually hear it in is in sort of a, a pessimistic, it's sort of an outward sigh kind of thing where one problem has given way to another problem. Yes, right. What's what's the law that they call? Um, Murphy's Law? Murphy's Law. Yeah, it's the yeah. Murphy's Law approach to things that, yeah, if this thing isn't <laughs> going wrong, something else is going wrong, right? Right. Yeah, I've heard that before. It's funny. Just uh, but just the way it's stated. If it's not one thing, it's the next. I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or if given. it's not one thing, it's another. Yeah. <laughs> is, is right. the other way I've heard of it. Which yeah. I think that makes more sense. You know, saying it the way you said it almost just makes it sound like, well, of course, if it's not one thing, it's the next. That's the only direction time goes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um but even if it's but, not one know, thing, it's another. Well, what, what, well, yeah, I guess that too. Is, is there an alternative? <laughs> you know? like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I'd call it thought <laughs> terminating, but it, it's like we understand each other. We're on the same plane, but yeah. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, I suppose maybe it's a pessimistic statement by nature yeah. that uh, yeah. it's someone focusing on the problem. Yeah. Do we ever say that about blessings? Oh, wow. If it's not this thing, it's the next blessing. No, never do that. <laughs> we don't do that. No, I guess not. No. So anyway, that was just something that crossed my um, mind. Not worth discussion, but okay, um, good. Uh, there's some feedback here. Yeah. Um, real quick. Which one do you yeah, want to hit first? We, we had talked about uh, dating, courtship, or other. Mm-hmm. And I thought we had talked about this in the after show, but maybe it was in the main episode. Uh, we talked about. Uh, I think it might have been an after show. But yeah, it, it might have been, but I don't think this listener who oh. offered this feedback oh, right. Good is point. an elite patron. Good point. So I'm so, thinking maybe it okay. was in the main episode. He basically but was we talked about, yeah, we talked about a certain um, college. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. We don't have to Bible school, we just, I guess. We no. Were just... no, we don't. But it's not Bravo Company Manufacturing. We'll say it that way. It's. Um, <laughs> that I think that's what I had said in the yeah. original episode, but I guess this this listener went there, and he explains that it's it's in a sense even worse than what we had thought, and and a part of me is is almost reading this as if, okay, he's got to be joking, right? Because he said you that you couldn't even talk to a girl, or you would get called into the office for flirting with another man's future wife. Which I got to is that I, is that real? I well, I mean, I, he's 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 not trying to, he's not making it up, you know. I don't think, but I also no. just going to say there's two sides to a story with with respect to yeah. the, that follow up. So I don't want to follow it too far, but just to say that he's saying, uh, "Yep, what you said, I've experienced," and um, I, I don't want to get into unless I don't he's wanna, making a joke. I don't, I don't know. I doubt it, but I. It doesn't seem like it. I don't really want to bash on them. I, the, you know, just different people have different uh, degrees of the way they yeah. carry stuff out. But anyway. I guess just in, in the principle of it seems a little, whether it's at that place or some other. Right. That if, if, if you, as you stated, know, it, it would be seem extreme, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That That's basically what I'm looking, <laughs> looking for. <laughs> Do you think that this is an extreme principle here, um, totally regardless of where it happens? But <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I would agree with you. Um, that seems extreme. Um, uh, here's is, the, is there another feedback here? Yeah. Um, here's one that um, 
actually, I don't know if I'd say it's feedback. It's a question that I, we dealt, did deal with, and it's maybe been several weeks now, but not too far in the past. Um, and this, uh, this elite patron asks, he said, I've encountered some Christians who view the command, or at least the principle from Genesis 9-4 and Leviticus 17-14, prohibiting the eating of blood to mean that we shouldn't eat rare steak that's quote, bloody, air quotes there, is the scientific argument that it's not actually blood, but myoglobin a good argument since myoglobin is a part of blood. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. I'm going to, yeah, you can go ahead and give your response first. I I was just going to say that there seems to be a couple of things at play. Uh, I mean, the obvious one being dispensational truth. How does that factor in to this command of not eating blood. That would be the first question that I would have. And second would be, does it, so if you take something apart into, into its various components, does each component equal the, the thing itself? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I would say no, you know, the, the, so you know, what came to mind first, actually, when I, when I read this was, uh, the whole, uh, frames and receivers ban that, uh, Biden's administration was trying to push through. I am not ATF. familiar with this. No. So, so like if you, if you have <clears throat> a gun, right, it's made of multiple parts. It's not just one solid chunk sure, of right. aluminum or steel <laughs> or what have you. Right. So it's been a longstanding American tradition that some people build their own mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you can buy um, lower receivers that are like 80% of the way finished from the manufacturer. And all you have to do is finish like the final 20% hmm. requires some tooling, some skill. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then you have a finished lower receiver. Well, it's like they, they tried to redefine that piece as a gun, as a firearm <laughs> in yeah. order to ban it. <clears throat> so then what would be the next logical step behind that? Well, that would be to ban blocks of aluminum. <laughs> Um, and define them as a gun. Yeah. And then you'd have to go even further than that and to say, you know, unrefined aluminum ore, if it comes in an ore, I don't know anything about that, but, I hear, but you'd I, have to ban yeah, that I, I hear that as mount, a gun. I hear that mountains are pretty deadly. You yeah. Know, yeah. Ban mountains. They're, they're full of guns is what's <laughs> the problem. And, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so I can people see how that- People don't kill people. Mountains kill people. <laughs> 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 oh, no. um, okay. But uh, all that to say, with uh, with the whole argument about not eating blood, if you cook something, and I don't, I don't know all the science behind it, but if you cook something and there's blood in it, and it begins to break down, mm-hmm. and uh, and and some of it cooks away, some of it is burned like with that, what do they call it? That Maillard, Maillard reaction or something like that. Mm. And you end up with component parts that were in blood. Do you still have blood? Um, I don't know that you do. Yeah, right. Not necessarily. I would no. I would say I, I have a, just a pretty simplistic <laughs> approach to this to say, look, I think the idea was uh, to me eating blood. You know, yeah. I, I kind of get the idea like, I'm, I'm like drinking a cup of blood. Sounds pretty pagan to me. And yeah. so, so the fact that you butcher out meat and you don't like put it into a, a vice grip and squeeze every drop of blood out of it. I don't think that's the intent. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Uh, right. So, so you, you cook and, and nobody's eating it raw. 
You know, just like ripping it out of the cow and slapping it in their mouth and eating it with the blood and everything. You know, you know what I'm saying? So you process it. Does it still, you know, are there still arterial things in there? Are there veins? Is there a little bit of technically blood in there? What? Oh, okay. You know what I mean? But I, the point, and then, and then you cook it a little bit. And so it's rare and it seems to have some, you know, blood in it. E- even so, I, I just don't know that that's really driving at, oh, you're eating right. blood. Well, I'm eating a steak that maybe doesn't have everything wrenched out of it, but Right. Uh, you know, and like you're saying, you, you can get more technical with the component parts and things like that. But I just feel yeah. like I, I think maybe it's a little bit overwrought on the um, the whole discussion. Um, but that being said, uh, that's that's one of those issues of conscience where I might feel like the conscience is a little overeducated. Um, but I'm not going to necessarily say, you know, just try to grieve your conscience in front of you. Um, yeah, maybe maybe not overeducated, maybe oversensitive. Oversensitive. Yeah. Okay. Because I don't I don't think education is bad for the conscious. I, I see. Education. I see. Yeah. Uh, when when yeah. I say overeducation, I mean that sometimes people have added uh, tenets of man's teaching to the conscience yeah. and added uh, added alarms that aren't meant to be there. <clears throat> um, right. They've actually educated it beyond scripture. You know. Um, yeah, but I see what you're saying that true, true knowledge, uh, of, yeah. of, of the Lord and of his word in the conscience certainly isn't a harmful thing. I guess it was on my mind. Cause, uh, at church just this past Sunday, there was a sermon delivered on first uh, Corinthians eight hmm. and the word knowledge is used there, uh, to describe the conscience of the stronger conscience brother, not the weaker conscience brother. In other words, it's the, the knowledge in a sense that enables the one brother to have a, a stronger conscience that isn't easily offended or caused to stumble, I should say, uh, by certain things. Interesting. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I think, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say the word conscience itself basically means with knowledge. Uh, so it's just yeah. with what knowledge am I doing what I'm doing? Um, and somehow the one's being grieved with the knowledge he has. And you're saying that the one with more knowledge, more accurate knowledge, um, actually has the stronger conscience. Yeah. Okay. Well, neat. Uh, so there you go, James. I uh, hope that helps uh, on it a little bit. Um, here's another one. Uh, uh, you, We had talked about, or had we talked about, um, yes, he said, in episode 180, I appreciate Tom's positivity. Pause here. Uh, I appreciate Tom's positivity about okay. God's plan for his family's future and the future. You're trying of to indicate that that's a rare thing or something. <laughs> I want to be an encouragement that somebody <laughs> saw you as positive. <laughs> that, that was an unprovoked shot right there. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Let me back. Can we no, that's okay. cut that out of, uh, out of the record there, Rosby? Um, let's see. He says, you guys talked about how there is a stigma that is attached to dissolving a church. Uh, I guess this would be in the episodes where we were talking about your transition in ministry. Um, uh-huh. uh, dissolving a church and how some people look at it as if it's really sad. Um, I remember you mentioned that. Uh, I wonder if the response would be any different for a missionary who dissolves a church in a foreign country and comes back to the States. Uh, essentially, it'd be the same thing, right? It's just we're talking... In, in our own human mindset, it's just a matter of borders, right? That he was yeah. somewhere foreign, now he states. But the same thing is that the church dissolved and, and the man's moving back. I know of several yeah. missionaries who have done this, and I wonder if they might receive more flack than a stateside pastor would or vice versa. Both of you 
um, have been pastors and have interacted a lot with missionaries. So I'd be interested to hear your thought on. This. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, I think it would be opposite, Matthew. Um, and just from, from my own experience and observation with others, which, you know, I'll admit I'm one guy, uh, your, your experiences may vary. <laughs> your yeah, results well, may vary. Very true. But yeah. I think there is a different expectation of stateside uh, pastors that um, is not really present for overseas missionaries. And the, the, the impression is that stateside starting a church should be easier. <laughs> yeah. Right. It, yeah. That's, that's the misconception. Um, it's, it's utterly a myth in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the United States. Now, are there places I could go in the United States and raise up what looks to be a church uh, fairly quickly? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, 100%. Um, where I was, it's not quite that way. Um, whereas I, I think the the overseas missionary, the expectation is not that they would have an American-looking church. Um I don't know that there's anyone who has a realistic expectation that a foreign missionary is going to start something that's going to look like a church in America. Um, So the expectations here are in a sense, a little steeper that the pressures are a little higher in some way for the church in America to look like what we expect. Um, And as soon as it doesn't, uh, people's hopes are dashed. So when it comes to dissolving a work here, the thought is, well, why would you need to do that? Starting churches here is easier. <laughs> um, well, no, it isn't. Not always. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you are going to see a variety of responses there because I, aren't aren't there those yeah. churches who are looking for, even from a missionary, they're looking for big numbers and supposed progress, you know, that we're seeing this happen yeah. on a monthly basis. And, 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 yeah. and there, I would say, well, their whole perspective of missions and even ministry itself is sort of skewed. Um, yeah. So those kind of people, well, but so, but then you have folks like us, you know, who we feel like have a realistic perspective of what uh, the outcome may be and how long that may take. Um, right. So you're going to have a variety there. But would you say that, from your experience, because you, obviously you were in this, um, that people are more prone stateside to give you temporary support? To say, yeah. we'll support you for three years. Where for a missionary, it's almost like you're married to him. You start, you mm-hmm. start supporting him, and you just sort of expect to do it for life. Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, only because I think you know, in a lot of foreign countries, missionaries aren't really allowed to work there. Yes, right. That's true. I don't know if um, how much if people know that, realize that, but yeah, legally, in in many cases or some cases, they can't. Right? They can't draw right. money out of Which, the economy. Yeah, which is why I wanted to have, and this is maybe a tangential point. There was one fellow I was wanting to have on on this episode, mm-hmm. and we had to reschedule him. Yes. And one of the things he focuses on is making indigenous works truly indigenous, that they are self-supporting on the field of their own volition as a church there, the same way a church would be here. Mm-hmm. And that the goal would be that they eventually don't need American money at all. <clears throat> um, but going back to the original point, a lot of folks don't know foreign missionaries cannot uh, work in, in many countries that they go to because of visas and laws and things like that. Whereas in the States, there's always that backup plan that people have in their mind for church planters that 
well, if things don't work out like you're thinking, you can always get a job, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. I was happy to. Um, mm-hmm. I, I tended to prefer trying to make money rather than take support. Um, mm-hmm. Just because I've never been a person who likes receiving gifts very well. <laughs> I've never been good at that. I, I get awkward. <laughs> um, so um, instead, I, I preferred working. But you know, when people would put time frames on that temporary support is when it sort of reveals their hand a little bit mm. about what they think an American church should be able to do. Their thought is, in two to three years, your church should be able to support not only itself, which is a pretty big feat in and of itself. Right, you're talking building overhead, their utilities. Yep. And that, but, but their expectation is that in two to three years, your church should be able to fully support you as well. <laughs> give you a living wage so in a high. Give you a living right. wage, which I, it blows my mind. And I, I've said it before, and I'll say it again, and it's, I suppose, rather controversial. I think if a guy is running two years into a brand new church plant and not only is his church doing well financially and paying its own bills, but they're also paying him a salary. Something doesn't read right to me about that. Something doesn't read right. Unless he's simply in one of those parts of the country where everybody's already got some sort of Christian background and they're just looking for the right kind of church and you happen to come in with it. Um, that's, that's not the same everywhere in the United States. Um, so I think dissolving a church in the U S comes with a different stigma than a missionary who comes off the field only because people have a different expectation of churches in the United States. And they're in a sense, more used to hearing about missionaries coming off the field or moving to a different field where they are and finding opposition there here. It's like, foreign to us to think that a guy would go to a town, start a church, and uh, it actually resists him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, whoa, yeah. that happens in America? Sure. Yeah, it totally does. Um, but I said it in back in that episode, um, and I guess it bears repeating here, that I think there is a certain level of presumption that happens in deputation and in ministry planning. And in some of it, that's built, that's baked into the cake that we we feel God's called us to do a certain thing, and we're trying to f- fulfill and obey that call. So we we tell people, "I am going to go plant a church in, you know, whatever town USA." That's what you believe you're going to do, right? Mm. But we often don't know what God's plan is. <laughs> specifically. That may be the thing he's led you to do right now because that's what gets you moving. But his intention may simply be for you to reach three or four souls Mm -hmm. that he knows will actually respond to the word of God there Mm -hmm. and to hold in judgment all the rest that he knows have utterly rejected him there. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. That was the case with our ministry um, in, in Connecticut is that largely by and large, we were met with, uh, unsaved people who wanted nothing to do, literally nothing to do with God or church or any, anything like it. And the saved people that we met there most of the time, like from other churches, or they were dispossessed from churches, most of them wanted nothing to do with church. And if they did want something to do with church, they didn't want the right kind of church. Mm -hmm. And even if they had the right kind of church, they wouldn't attend it faithfully anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And and what we ended up with in the end was a handful of people that I believe God brought us there specially for, 
that we would be there for a time in their life mm-hmm. to help the Lord and them meet and put them on a certain path in life that they wouldn't otherwise be on. And when that goal was reached, the Lord said, it's time to move somewhere else. And that's what we did. Mm -hmm. So all that to say, you go into ministry with a presumption of what you're going to do. And and, in looking back at it now in retrospect, it feels presumptuous to say, I'm going to plant a church. And it turns out that's not really what the Lord had intended for us. It's just what he led us to do at the time. Um, yeah, and and with missions, and that I mean foreign missions, because of our perspective of the finances, that once you have the support, if you have if you have people who are more reasonable in their expectations, um, and and maybe there's apathy that goes into it, and there may be different factors, but nonetheless, that that uh, support is there for a long time. So even if a missionary found themselves in a, in a scenario similar to yours where, well, they're just only, you know, you know, they're getting so a handful of people, right? Well, they can, they can continue to exist for a long time that way because they're fully supported, uh, or, or at least have a significant amount of support. So if there's not a lot of growth, they just keep trying and keep reaching out and keep, and it's not, but somehow because of the support level, they can continue to, exist. I mean, you know, where, where stateside, if it's like, uh, well, Hey, we'll give you so much time. Now you got to be bivocational. Well, then it, that puts a further strain on it because now you have less time to invest in the ministry. And, uh, here, go ahead. I was going to say, and for that reason, some have actually, in uh, in talking with me since have said, do you think things would have gone differently if you would have gone without any support whatsoever and supported yourself without having the pressure of having to report to anyone. Hmm. And, and I understand the question. Mm-hmm. It, it, to me, it's sort of an irrelevant question because that isn't what the Lord led us to do. Mm-hmm. That isn't what happened. Um, do I think things would have been different? I don't think the outcomes would have been different. Yes, um, right. I, that, I think that is interesting, though, as a question, was the greater part of your stress merely the spiritual response of the people or the uh, or the uh, skepticism or judgment that you felt from people looking on of what your results should be, you know, where, mm. where if you were, if you were by yourself. I've never been asked that. Yeah. I've, I've never been asked it that way, I should say. Yeah. I would say it was probably 50-50. There's a lot of pressure and it's unspoken, but there's a lot of pressure from supporting churches and churches that are behind your ministry. It's a lot of pressure to try and please them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, you can do one of a few things. You can either in your reports lie to them. Not one I recommend, but no. you know, it happens in missionary letters um, more, more, more we, often yeah. than we probably would <clears throat> care to know. Um, I can say with a clear conscience, I never did. Um, in fact, I was almost, uh, too blunt the other way. Um, I would, I would very openly share our losses with Mm -hmm. our supporters. I would very openly share the struggles that we had with our supporters, not in a, uh, you know, Oh, pity me kind of way. I I like Uh, often very, Oh, thank you. Uh, I tried to keep it very, uh, sort of, cold and maybe unemotional, uh, very factual in a way, and just kind of explain to people the dynamics of things. Uh, and was there maybe a 
sort of um, a goal behind the scenes I had in educating our supporters on how real ministry functions and works. Yeah, maybe. Um, but I wanted them to know it's not always sunshine and roses. It's not always excitement all the time. Uh, in fact, uh, I don't know of any case in scripture where uh, someone in ministry described it as exciting <laughs> or, or some comparable New Testament word. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you oftentimes see you know, Paul speaking of the perils he was in mm-hmm. and the descriptions mm-hmm. of the responses mm-hmm. Jesus received and, and so on, uh, and many of the, uh, <laughs> the disciples. Mm-hmm. But all that to say... I would say it was probably 50-50, the strain from um, mm-hmm. supporters, uh, you know, the pressure to want to wanna do right by them, but also the response of people in the community. And uh, a lot of folks from other churches would come through. And I'll tell you, that was probably the biggest strain of all, is when folks hmm. would come to a new church plant who had experience from other churches. Um that because yeah. yeah, they 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 have an expectation of uh, how they think things should be, and they mm-hmm. may have never had a pastor before that just tells them the full truth uh, in 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 a polite and respectful way, um, but still tells it to them. Uh, they might have never had an experience where you know someone actually teaches them the Bible and it brings about conviction, and uh, you know, and they come in and all of a sudden, oh wow, I've never heard that before. <laughs> Well, it's been sitting here in the text the whole time. Where you been? Um, not that I would actually say that to people, but that's oftentimes what I would think is you've been in church 20, 30 years. You haven't heard that before. Um, but anyway. Here, here's an interesting thought experiment. And this is departing from uh, Matthew's original question. I think we've kind of uh, dealt with that to some degree as far as is the perception of a dissolving church uh, on a foreign field different than that on uh, – uh, different than that state side. Um, but here's a different thought as we were talking and thinking about uh, anyone's expectation that a stateside church would be fully supporting in however many years. Uh, think about the the numbers there. If uh, let's say that uh, the people in your church made uh as an income, exactly what you would make if you were fully supported, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, If we expect them to tithe, they're giving 10% of that income. Well, then theoretically, just to support you, it would take 10 tithing families who make what they intend to give you. You see what I'm saying? Those 10, 10% would be, that's just to support you. And that would be, of course, 10 families with a full-time income. Um, And then, of course, you have the expenses of the building. And I I don't know, honestly, what what a budget for, say, a church startup is or a young church like that. Obviously, the salaries here would be different. It'll be different in each church because here we have two staff members versus another one has one or another church has seven or whatever. And what what's the uh, the ratio of uh, of actual salary to the entire budget of the church. But let's even just say that in a young church, it's half Mm -hmm. that the pastor makes half of what then is used for overhead or for what missionaries they're beginning to support. So let's say you've got 10, you need, you need 10 tithing, you know, full-time working people just to support the pastor. And then you double that. So you'd need 20 tithing families 
Now, how many Christians, you know, by percentage in a church tithe? Well, I don't know what the percentage is, but let's say, and again, I'm pulling this out of thin air, but just for a a thought experiment here, let's say half, (laughs) half, and that might be generous, but say half half really grasp the concept of the tithe and they're dedicated to giving 10% of their income, right? So now that means that you would have not 10 families or 20, but you'd have 40 families in your church to get 20 that are supporting the budget. And now we're not talking about 40 40 people necessarily, but that would probably typically mean families involved that might be a couple, it might be two or three children, it might be a single individual. So you're talking about um, maybe 80 to 100 people. So that's if if we're generous with the, 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 the number of people that really grasp the concept of tithing, especially in a church plant where they're new believers. So so if the expectation is that in two years or in four years, this person would have reached a hundred people who are actively coming to church, a large portion of which are dedicated to tithing. Yeah. That's a pretty big expectation. Well, I, I would say so, especially if you consider how many of those supporting churches themselves would add 80 to 100 dedicated tithing families in two to three years <laughs> to their membership. You're roles. right. Um, right. Asking the missionary to do something that they're not doing themselves. No. no. Right. Um, and, and, I, I, and I don't want it to sound like I'm complaining um, about uh, supporting churches. We were very grateful for all of the ones that we had uh, while we sure, were in Connecticut. Sure. Um, oh yeah, and and I don't want to make it sound either like uh, finances were the reason that we we left because truth be told, mm-hmm. I was working quite a lot and was able to support us with the the support we were receiving from churches. I was able to work on top of that and make up the difference. And um, yeah, I'm I, I'm just speaking to the. I'm not uh, accusing you of, of of any of those things. I'm just speaking to the real the realistic. Uh, how yeah. realistic is that expectation by a church who you know imposes that or has that mental context of of the right. stateside mission? And think about it too. Even if you mm-hmm. were to get a number of new converts, how long is it going to be before they fully grasp the concept of tithing? Um, mm-hmm. And and it's one of those things too where I, I would never want them to do that for the wrong reasons. Um, right. So it's not right. an issue I would push very quickly or early. Uh, you know, to to be a careful pastor, I, I think would mean that you don't really push the matter of tithing very much with new converts for quite a while. Um, they may be coming from the world where there's already a bad stigma of those in ministry asking for your fifty dollars across the television set. Or on the yeah, radio, right, right? And here they come. They're a brand new convert in your church, and all of a sudden you tell them, uh, "God commands you to give ten percent of your income to this church." Um, right. They're going to be running for the door. Um, <clears throat> so, not to mention, it is it is very much a um, a uh, a matter of faith and a growing faith, uh-huh. uh, because if you you know if you you push someone too hard to say you need to be tithing and they think, well, man, I'm in debt over here and I owe these five things, but okay, you said I should tithe. And then, 
you know, that'll be right. And God will bless me for obeying or whatever. And then they pay their tithe and they can't pay their bills and their cars repossessed and, you know, whatever. Yeah. And then, well, well, you said that if I, you know, so for them personally, it has to come to the point where God wants me to do yep. this. And if I, if I don't, I'm disobeying, you know, I mean, that has to be a personal choice. And, yeah. uh, well, for, so, for some interesting. interesting details on tithing, you could listen to the last episode, um, folks, if you haven't heard that one yet with, uh, Ethan Ryan, um, okay. we talked yes, a little yes. bit about tithing there. Um, okay. but anyway, it's a good, good thought um, experiment there. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, unless you want to do a different question, um, there actually there's three different uh three different ones here i was going to go to the social media one but what do you think uh should we hit one of the others to kind of finish us up and bring us into our after show okay well there's some there's some clarification real quick on okay um a question that was sent in by jacob where we asked him for clarification on it. He said, you know, what are your thoughts on the phrase? You only live once as a Christian. I think he asked, is there like a good way to use that or something to that effect? And Mm -hmm. we didn't quite understand like in what context would you, would you mean? Um, So he, he wrote in some clarification. um, Okay. And uh, how would it go now? I think he meant like in a spiritual sense. Uh, like, can you use this? Should you use this in a spiritual sense since it was originally used in a secular sense? Um, you had a comment on this one that I was curious to see. Um, <laughs> t- talk about that. Yeah. Well, and not that it's, it's uh, super applicable. I just, the thought, the phrase came to my mind is it Paul um, that's writing to the Titus, pastor of the Cretans, and, and, and somehow he mentions something about give them a warning uh, as their own poets say, you know, they are evil beasts, slow bellies, such is true, or something mm-hmm. like that. Anyway, that, that phrase, something about as their own poets say, kind of like saying, look, their own secular people write this. Um, and it's true, you know? So the fact that it's like he borrowed a secular term to say, this is what culture sees them as. Um, and, and so anyway, I just kind of thought it does have some application there to say, you know, if, if culture uses a phrase, I think it's a, it's a case by case basis. Of course, of course, spiritually speaking for the, for the Christian, it means something entirely different to say you only live once than it does for the uh, that for the secular earthling, right. if I could put it that way, they, they see it as so time bound, like, well, until I die, that's, I only live once. And we say, no, literally you live forever. Well, I mean, the Christian, <laughs> you know, in some ways you only the live Christian once. version, uh, based on a passage of scripture. And you'll have to remind me the reference, the Christian version of this is redeem the time. <laughs> yes. It was Ephesians that's 5, it, 16, Ephesians 5, 16. Okay. Um, isn't that in a sense saying you only get so much time, um, on this earth. <laughs> so yes, right, so right. And use I use it wisely. <laughs> that's a good point. And, and what I clarify, what I said earlier, you only live once, you know, in some ways I feel like your spirit goes on forever. So from here on out at death, you don't actually die as they perceive it. You know, your existence continues though. It's not a spiritual life yeah. in, in, as in a, a union. With yeah. The and as the songwriter but, um, said, work for the night is coming when man's work is done. Yeah. Uh, it's a similar concept. So I, 
I think you can use I think you can use their phrases and uh, whether not to say that you just make it part of your vernacular and like hey man you know give them the sign well, and say some secular phrase in a way that um, but give it you go ahead and say what you're going to say and then I got an example of uh, well go of with this. your example first because I'm looking up a note I had on this yeah um, well it, it was a few years back um, and I'm trying to think uh, it, it must have been on one of uh, a missions trip that I went on I was flying. And it, uh, it seems to me that maybe I was flying out of uh, Los Angeles or something like that. But anyway, I uh, I was sitting next to this fella, and he was he was friendly, and uh, but it was kind of funny because he was listening to this this music or whatever, and he's oh man, you you got to hear this song, and he actually like gives me his earbud, <laughs> and uh, so I, I like listen to this song, and he's listening to this pop song, and. Um, so, you know, it's running through my mind. Okay, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? <laughs> How am I going to comment on this song? Because he's going he's gonna to look for my impression of this song. And so when it finished, I said, well, I noticed in the song he said, and I, and I, and I said a statement that was a, an interesting and a true statement, I guess. And he's like, oh, but yeah, you're, I can tell you, you listen well to songs because you picked that out or something like that, you know. But, um, and I can't remember off the top of my head what the phrase was, but the point was, is I could pull out that phrase and say, wow, you know, what he's, what he's saying, um, oh, what he said, something like I've, I've gone, I've gone something like I've gone so far, but in the wrong direction, oh. you know, it's like I've made progress, but in the, in the wrong yeah. way. And, you know, so then I highlighted that to him to say, you know, and so then I was probably trying to use that to transition into the gospel to say, you know, you can go so far, but the wrong way and realize that we need to whatever, whatever. Yeah. So was I using that secular phrase? Well, sure. You know, um, nothing wrong with no. that. In fact, um, that, that's, that's the note I was looking for is that I have cataloged no fewer than three instances in scripture where the apostle Paul uses words that are traceable to pagan philosophers that predated him that it seems mm -hmm. he would have read. Um, there's one uh, by the name of Aratus and another named Menander and one called Epimenides. And he actually mm -hmm. reused their words to make good points that those men didn't intend to make. In other words, he repurposed what they said. <laughs> he did exactly what uh -huh. you did on the plane mm -hmm. um, with the words right, of right. pagan philosophers. Uh, it was in uh, Acts seventeen twenty eight where he wrote, uh, in him we live and move and have our being, uh, as certain also of your own poets have said. <clears throat> um, the first half of the fifth line is word for word of a poem by Aratus, a Greek countryman, uh, and uh, he preceded Paul by about three centuries. Mm -hmm. um, so was it is it possible that Paul had read this man and used those words in a way that that man had not intended. Uh, yeah, right. I think, I think well, so. Yeah. And I mean, think about it. All truth is God's truth. Yes. So even, even when an unsaved, uh, you know, uh, worldly minded person comes up with something that's true, it's not that he invented the truth. Right. It's just he, he happened to say something that was consistent with the design of God. And so you could, sir, you can, you can take it and say, you know what, you're right. <laughs> and then, and then share more truth with them. And it's not that you're, uh, so, so if, if this secular phrase is actually true and you can purpose it in a certain way, of course, I'm sure there's a balance and you have to, you know, consider the circumstance, consider the source, you know, if you, if it's a, yeah. You know, anyway, I'm sure there's other considerations depending on the phrase, yeah. but 
Uh, and just real quick, yeah. the other example is in Titus one twelve. Um, mm-hmm. Speaking of the the Cretan there, who was considered a diviner and a prophet, uh, those words there were likely taken from this uh, this writer's uh, work called Concerning Oracles. Um, mm. And then First Corinthians fifteen thirty three, evil communications corrupt good manners. Uh, this is an iambic line from Face of Menander, and perhaps taken by Menander from a play of Euripides. Uh, and that's according mm. to one one writer that I have scratched down here mm. in my notes. Um, yeah, I just thought it was an interesting thing to write down because it it kind of covers some things we don't often like to admit, and that one Paul was a reader of secular philosophers. <laughs> Clearly. And two, God actually put those words in inspired scripture. Those are two things we don't like to admit, I think. Some some folks don't like to admit. Um, but I think you put it well, saying all truth is God's truth. Um, and mm-hmm. that, in a sense, eliminates any problem we should have with these things being recorded in scripture. And I and I don't think that phrase is, is original with me. It seems in my mind that it's more attributed to Frank Gabeline. But okay. but yeah, the truth is there. That um, um, yeah. So that basically takes us right to the end of our episode. We need to transition into the after show, and I wonder if we want to take his second question in that same note there, and uh, carry that into yeah. um, into our after show. Which um, uh, do you want to tease what- that question for? Sure. Yeah, let's see. He said uh, he thought that our uh, our thoughts on movie theaters were interesting, and so he was asking our thoughts on playing cards, uh, on playing cards. So anyway, we'll uh, launch into the after show with that. And uh, and again, if you have any feedback on the things we've been saying, you have a question of your own, uh, just things you you know, just like we do. We're going through a day and we're like, hey, that's something I need to mention. Or what, what about that? You know, hadn't thought about that before. And you want to throw it our way and uh, hear us bat it around a little bit. Uh, feel free to send us a note at reasontogetherpodcast at gmail.com. That's reasontogetherpodcast at gmail.com. And, uh, and uh, keep thinking and keep listening. And we appreciate you coming. We are encouraging balance, developing perspective, and connecting faith to practice. This is Reason Together.